the scripture reading is Psalm 91, uh, verses 1 through 2 and 9 through 16. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all ways. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you cannot dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Amen. Let us listen together for the word of God as it comes to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him, until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God who entered the wilderness, give us strength for the journey before us. Nourish us with your word and give us the will to remember that we are your beloved now 
and always. Amen. I'm a bit of a movie person. Like, I, I'm a cinephile, I guess is the right word. I'm actually an audiophile, that's another story, but I'm a, real, I'm a cinephile. I really like movies. And so, during both Advent and Lent, I actually make it part of my spiritual practice to watch several movies. In Advent, I take in Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, which is a, a sci-fi rendition of the nativity story set in a dystopian future where children are no longer born until, miraculously, a woman gives birth. Then I turn to Paul Schrader's First Reformed, another unlikely nativity story set against the specter of ecological devastation and climate grief, where hope is found through the unexpected arrival of new life. And finally, during Advent, I, I take in a masterpiece that is unequivocally in my top five favorite films of all time, The Muppet Christmas Carol, which is, to my mind, the definitive edition of Dickens' classic tale. It's really remarkable. If you haven't seen it, you're missing out. It's great. Kermit the Frog, it's, it's wonderful. In Lent, it's Xavier Beauvoir's masterful work of gods and men, a true story about Trappist monks living with and serving an impoverished community during the Algerian Civil War and the way of the cross that they choose to follow to fulfill their sacred calling. There isn't time to speak about Martin Scorsese's Silence or Sean Penn's Into the Wild or James Gray's Ad Astra, each movie awash with Lenten themes, each having deeply enriched my own spiritual journey over the years. But perhaps most meaningful of all to me is a smaller, more intimate film called The Way. It's directed by Emilio Estevez, and it stars his father, Martin Sheen. The Way is about an aging ophthalmologist named Tom Avery, who learns that his estranged and only son has been tragically killed while traveling the Camino de Santiago in Spain. For those unfamiliar, the Camino, known as the Way of St. James in English, is a medieval pilgrimage trail, roughly 500 kilometers long. There's different tracks, but they average out to about 500 kilometers. And they all lead to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela on the northwestern tip of Spain, the site where the remains of St. James are purportedly interred. Tom Avery. Martin Sheen's character, a doubting Thomas, if ever there was one, an eye doctor suffering from his own kind of spiritual myopia and blindness, travels to Europe to retrieve his son's remains. On a whim, and completely against his nature, Tom decides to complete the pilgrimage in his son's stead. Perhaps to process his grief, perhaps to get away from it all, he sets off on the Camino de Santiago, his son's ashes strapped to the side of his hiking pack. Along the way, Tom meets an unlikely group of people, all about the age of his deceased son. And little by little, their deeply personal intentions for walking the way come into focus. A Dutchman walking the Camino to lose a bit of weight. A Canadian trying to quit smoking. An Irish writer trying to recapture his creativity. All of them are searching for some kind of meaning along the Camino, all of them on a pilgrimage to some image of wholeness, all of them beset by temptations as they try to set down old patterns of being 
and take up life in its deepest sense once again. The film is over 10 years old now, so I'm rather certain that the statute of limitations on spoilers has expired at this point. I'm pretty sure the lawyers will have to correct me on that, but without revealing too much, the movie conveys a profound truth. Healing often comes to us in the forgotten reaches of our own identity. Healing often comes to us in the forgotten reaches of our own identity. Each of us wanders a wilderness, personal and vast, yet the life for which we so deeply yearn is often as close to us as our very breath. Remembering who we are, who we have always been, creatures of light, bearers of the breath of God, children of a love that will, not, will never depart. That is where true healing often comes to us. And yet, we are a forgetful lot, aren't we? <laughs> Perhaps the deepest temptation we will ever face is to forget the promise that we call the good news of the gospel, that we are always and already the beloved children of God, and nothing can change that. Today's lectionary text from Luke's gospel, a classic for the start of Lent, tells the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It's a really fascinating story, but I'm actually not sure we can adequately understand it unless we hear what Scripture says directly preceding this story. In the two paragraphs of Luke before the story of the wilderness temptation, we hear of Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him and a voice from heaven proclaims, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Then, for the next 14 verses, the gospel writers trace the genealogy of Jesus, from Joseph through King David, all the way back to Adam. <laughs> the point of all of this is that Scripture sends Jesus into the wilderness with an identity, an identity that is firmly situated in the people of Israel, loved and chosen by God to bring healing to the nations of the earth. It is that very identity which the adversary, the tempter, what scripture calls the devil, entices Jesus to forget, to set aside in favor of power, influence, and wealth. Like a, like a work of poetry, the story of Jesus in the wilderness rhymes with the Old Testament story of Israel in the wilderness, recapitulating its themes and revitalizing its message. Jesus turns to his identity as an Israelite, as one who follows the law of God, as one full of the Holy Spirit. And in remembering, Jesus resists the will to power and self-sufficiency that spells death and destruction for all of God's creatures. First, the tempter entices Jesus, starving after his long 40-day fast. I never fasted for 40 days. I don't, I don't imagine how you can do that, but anyway. So he's starving after his long 40-day fast. 
And the tempter comes to him to entice him to turn the desert stones into loaves of bread. Jesus, the one who will feed the crowds by multiplying loaves and fish later in Luke's gospel, equally distributing the riches of the earth for all to enjoy, refuses to hoard for himself the sustenance owed to all people. The ancient scriptures tell us that in their wilderness wanderings, the people of Israel were faced with a similar choice. When manna, the mysterious heavenly bread, fell from the sky, they were ordered not to hoard it, to take only what they needed, to leave enough for their neighbors to gather as well. In response to the tempter, Jesus cites the words written in the Torah, wisdom that Israel passed down generation after generation through the telling of the wilderness story, a story that Jesus now remembers and lives through. One does not live by bread alone. I think this passage, this, this phrase has been a bit misinterpreted over the, over the centuries of church history. Um, I, and I, I want to combat a little bit of that this morning. I don't think Jesus is setting up some artificial dualism of body and spirit by saying this. He's not setting up some ascetic ideal that casts our human needs as violations of spiritual purity. If the theology of the incarnation teaches us anything, it's that Jesus is very interested in the needs of the body. His being itself is inflected toward our real, earthy, mundane, human conditions. The fact that Jesus will go on to multiply the loaves for the hungry indicates that caring for material needs of others is at the core of what it means to live a life of faith. As the saying goes, one does not live by bread alone, but it sure does help. Perhaps we might restate Jesus' words in this way. Caring only for our own sustenance and well-being is a hellish way to live. It is only by caring for all that we truly live as God intended. Jesus refuses the way of selfish accumulation by remembering his true identity as one who is loved beyond measure and who is called to share, truly share, that love with others. Then the second temptation. The tempter takes Jesus to a high place. In Matthew's gospel, it's a mountain. In Luke's gospel, it's some ethereal plane where he sees all the kingdoms of the world. I don't know. Anyway, he's up high somewhere, okay? And so the tempter shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, and promises him control if only he will shift his allegiance from the God of Israel, the God who liberated the people from Pharaoh's control, remember, and enslavement in Egypt, to the God of power and domination. If there's a word that the nations of the world need to hear this morning, and I'm not just speaking about Russia, but also the United States of America and any nation that chooses to exploit its powerless neighbors. It's that God will brook no attempts to usurp the earth. Jesus, who knows Israel's story, how the once enslaved eventually became enslavers themselves, 
Jesus chooses the better way. To serve the God who liberates, who invades the world not with authoritarian control and militant force, but who invades the world with redemptive grace. Remembering once again the wisdom of Torah, a wisdom that was part of his very being, Jesus answers the tempter, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This humble act of remembrance becomes itself a fiery word of defiant resistance to those who would bend the earth to their will and whim. The tempter has guided Jesus from the desert floor to a high place, a mountain, and finally to the temple in Jerusalem, like a poem tracing or recapitulating Israel's own journey. This time, the tempter itself, himself, cites scripture from the very psalm that Patty actually read just a few moments ago, enticing Jesus to throw himself off of the temple to display in spectacular fashion the divine power at work in him. Yet once again, Jesus, remembering the Torah, remembering his identity as God's child, remembering the fullness of life contained in the love of God, forsakes the path of power, spectacle, and selfish gain and instead humbly follows the way of true life. Life with and for God, life with and for our neighbors, life with and for the world. The passage ends in a different way than Matthew's gospel. In Luke's gospel, it ends hauntingly with these words. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. There's no triumphalism, no shouts of acclamation, no applause at Jesus' victory over temptation. Maybe that's because the test is not yet over for him. In many respects, it's just beginning, and the greatest test yet to come will be in the form of the cross. But in the wilderness, Jesus has revealed the way toward wholeness with humility, the way toward life with love, the way toward redemption with remembrance. At at the beginning of each Lent here at WPC, it's our custom to mark that which we will set down and that which we will take up during our Lenten journey. We often write them on these ribbons and place them on this cross during our Ash Wednesday service. There's no program for doing Lent correctly, no handbook or guide. I choose to watch movies during Lent, right? Like, that's what I do, right? There's no proper way to do it. But if we take anything from the story of Jesus in the wilderness, I hope it's this. We are sent into the wilderness with an identity. We are full of the Holy Spirit, loved by God, 
placed on the earth for its welfare, to find life in its deepest sense. Perhaps we need only to remember this truth, which is as close to us as our very breath. I want to close with a blessing that I recently found in a book titled Circle of Grace. It spoke to me deeply, and I I pray it will speak to you as well. The blessing is titled, Beloved is Where We Begin. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are. Beloved named by the one who has traveled this path before you. Do not go without letting it echo in your ears. And if you find it is hard to let it into your heart, do not despair. That is what this journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger, from fear, from hunger or thirst, from the scorching of sun or the fall of the night. But I can tell you that on this path, there will be help. I can tell you that on this way, there will be rest. I can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road such as this, that fly to meet us bearing comfort and strength, that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear with their curious insistence and whisper our name. Beloved, beloved, beloved. We are truly God's beloved. Amen.